Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the Scripture that have made them more real to us so that we can draw more power out of them because we need that in our lives. I'm your host, Kerry Mulestein, and while I'm still here in Egypt, I'm thrilled to do another little short cast. This is the kind that sometimes we do. It's almost a gee whiz where we just go through some elements that are interesting. Uh, there's some just teeny little details of reality. Uh, that I think are kind of fun and hopefully make the story a little more real for you. And hopefully we can draw some lessons from it and get something out of it. And it seems like while I'm here in Egypt and we're talking about the Israelites leaving Egypt, it's a good time to do one of these gee whiz short casts. So we are today uh, just going to cover chapters 16 and 17 of Exodus. So let's get started on that. There are a couple of things, uh, really just a whole bunch of little things I'm going to touch on, as I said. Uh, We note that it starts there in verse 1, as they take their journey from Elim, uh, which is in the wilderness of Sin. So it's it's worth noting that you see it's a capital S. uh, It's really probably better pronounced Sin. This is not Sin as in, wow, there's a lot of Sin there. It's just the name of the place, S-I-N-Sin, it's just ends up being spelled the same way that we spell the word sin, but I don't want um, people to get confused about that. And uh, you see that uh, they they journey from Elim, uh, which is between, and and they go into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. So they're now going into this nasty, nasty place. Uh, Maybe we'll actually start with the, the verse right before chapter 16, the last verse of chapter 15, where they come to Elim where there were 12 wells of water and three score and 10 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So the thing is, they're going through very, very inhospitable territory. This is a nasty, nasty area uh, that's very hard to live in. And uh, it's a lot of, it's, there's some sand, but then it gets to be where there's a lot of granite uh, and sand, but not a lot uh, of living uh, material and uh, or organisms and not a lot of water. So, But there are oases. And this is part of how we can try and plot out where they may have gone. And we can't know for sure, but there are some some routes that make a lot of sense based on this little itinerary they're giving us. And we can say, well, it is about this far until another oasis. And look, there's an oasis that seems to match their description. If you want to go through some of that, I'd refer you to my YouTube channel. And instead of the the scriptures are real, uh, so that the, the channel is called the scriptures are real, but there's the scriptures are real playlist. And then there's a, a class video playlist. And on the class video playlist, you can look for the one on the I think it's wilderness wanderings or deliverance. I don't remember what it's called but, uh, for this one, but I use maps and pictures of these areas and you can kind of go through that. But there are some places that seem to match this description of Elim where there are these oases with lots of water and palm trees and, you know, date palms and all sorts of things. So uh, that would allow them to survive. And note that they camp there. So we, we typically think of them during this uh, 40 years, and this is at the beginning before they know they're even going to be sentenced, as it were, to 40 years. Uh, but they, we think of them just like wandering the whole time, but really they went to a place that could support them and they stayed there for a while and then they move on to another place. And that seems to be what's happening here. Now we get, uh, in chapter 16 that they are hungry. Like I said, not a lot of animals to eat there. There's not a lot of food growing. Uh, of course they're going to get hungry. Uh, they miss being fed in Egypt where there's great agriculture. And so they are murmuring, I think verse eight theologically, or uh, at least uh, in terms of spiritual messages, is very, very important and powerful for us. 
Moses says this. He says, this shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat. So he's going to give them some kind of flesh to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. So you'll be full of flesh in the evening and bread in the morning. But now listen to this next part. For the Lord heareth your murmurings, which ye murmur against him. Note how he says against him. And what are we, meaning like him and Moses, and, or he, he is Moses, him and Aaron, uh, who they've been, have been leading the congregation and who they are murmuring against. He says, what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. He's going to teach that uh, a number of times uh, in, while they're in the wilderness. This is incredibly important. We need to remember this. When you are deciding not to follow the prophet or you're complaining about the uh, first presidency messages, statements, policies, uh, you're not complaining about the prophet or the first presidency. Let's be really clear about that. You're just complaining about the Lord. When you don't accept what they teach, you're just not accepting what the Lord teaches. When you don't accept the policy they put forward, you're just saying, I want God to reconcile himself to my will. I don't want to reconcile my will to God's will. Moses is very clear about this, and God is as well. And it's worth taking a moment to think about this. Uh, th- as I'm recording this, we're like a day away from conference. Uh, this will come out after general conference has started, but uh, it's a fantastic time to be thinking about that. Okay, we're going to keep moving on. We're going to move down to verse 16. So we get to verse 16, and uh, oh, no, I didn't mean verse, I meant verse 13, sorry. Verse 13, and it came to pass, and in the evening, quails came up and covered the camp. We'll do the, the stuff for Dua in the morning in a second, but the quails come up. Now, this is an interesting thing. There's a great uh, rabbinic scholar, I mean, well, he's a, he's a, a scholar today who follows rabbinic Judaism. He is a Jew, he's in Israel, um, and he is uh, a zoologist. And uh, he really studies all of the animals that are mentioned in the Bible and uh, tries to get to know what's going on with them so he can help us understand uh, some of these stories. He has a great book and uh, he runs a museum and you can go and see it there in Israel and so on. Anyway, just fantastic stuff. But one of the things that he has has, uh, taught is that the quails migrate. And when they migrate, we're used to quails. When we see them, they run. They, they don't fly very much. They, for the most part, run. But when they migrate, they fly. But the problem is they're not great flyers. So they will fly for quite a bit of a day. But when they're done, they are done. And they land and they are worn out. And they can't run. They can't move. They need a, a, a day or a night and so on uh, to quite a while to recover. And this area that the Israelites are on is along their migratory path. And so it would seem that what happens is that where the Israelites camp is exactly how far the quail can get as they're flying before they're exhausted. They land and they can't move. They're just done. And the Israelites can go and pick them up and eat quail to their heart's content. Quail is still something you can eat here in Egypt. In fact, uh, my plan is that I will be eating some tomorrow. My favorite restaurant serves chicken and quail. And I try and eat quail frequently just so I can know what it was like for the Israelites. It's quite tasty. It tastes a bit like chicken. But anyway, um, uh, this is just a fun little tidbit to help us understand what's happening there. Then we move on to the next part of that verse. In the morning, dew lay around about the hoofs. They come out and it looks like dew. Well, and there is some dew and it looks like dew. But when the dew was got up in verse 14, behold, upon the face of the wilderness, there lay a small round thing. So they couldn't see it for the dew. 
But when it, it comes up, it, it looks like it's hoarfrost on the ground. It looks like, oh, little shiny silvery things left, you know, maybe because it was so cold, we get just a little bit of ice, but it wasn't ice. It was something else. And so when the children of Israel saw it, they said to another, mana, which is literally, what is, what is that? What's this? Uh, and that sticks. That's its name. Oh, it's manna. Mana. And it's a bread that the Lord gives them to eat. And there's a lot of symbolism in how manna works for the Israelites. I mean, first of all, we, we use this phrase all the time. It's like manna from heaven. This is when, when they can't survive, God just gives it to them. He just gives it to them, and they're going to take care of it. It, it, it. Elsewhere, it's described as being like coriander seeds, so we think of it as maybe little wafers, but it's quite small, a whole bunch of little things. Maybe you think of this as almost like uh, couscous, and you have to, if you're familiar with that, or you know, kind of like round rice pellets kind of thing, where you just have to gather a whole bunch if you're going to have enough to eat. Um, but it's fairly tasty, uh, even though if you eat it, three meals a day for years, you will get fairly tired of it, just like anything. But uh, it is something that they can live off of. God takes care of them. He doesn't, make, he doesn't serve them a steak meal every night, although that you'd get tired of that too. But he doesn't, uh, you know, it's not uh, a buffet. Uh, he gives them what they need to survive. Uh, and there are some key elements to this. They cannot gather more than one day's worth. If they gather more when they wake up the next morning, it's nasty. They can't eat it. It's got worms and, and so on. So if you're going to live off this, you have to gather it every day. Now, this is going to have a comparison because God says you can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So there is a comparison between this bread that he's giving them and his word. And you cannot gather so much of God's word in one day that you're good the next. And no sacrament is so good that it lasts more than a week and so on and so on. You need to seek the nourishment from God constantly. I don't care how good your spiritual manna was yesterday. It's not going to last over to today. And however good it is today, it doesn't last till tomorrow. You need nourishment from God constantly, and that's very, very important. But of course, there's one exception to that, and that exception is the Sabbath day, because the Sabbath day is important. And so God will actually make it so that manna lasts for more than a day, on the Sabbath, so that they can gather twice as much and still be okay on the Sabbath day. To me, that is a testament of the importance of the Sabbath day, and I think we're losing sight of this. Uh, it was not that many years ago where the church put a great emphasis on how important the Sabbath day was, and I think if we hadn't, uh, we wouldn't have done as well with the, the Come Follow Me program, uh, the two-hour church in the home uh, focus would Come Follow Me, especially as we went through COVID. I just think we wouldn't have done very well, but I my sense is we're losing sight of this. I am surprised at what people are willing to do on the Sabbath day. Uh, what they uh, just even a few years ago, we would have been embarrassed. They were doing it. No one even hesitates. Uh, we've lost focus of the Sabbath day in many ways. And this is at the exact time when President Nelson is telling us, please make more time for Christ, less time for the world and more time for Christ. And that's probably the greatest value of the Sabbath day is that we try and tune out the world or the beat of Babylon's band, as President Nelson put it. We try and tune that out and instead make more time for listening to Christ. Because if we don't, then the world is going to fool us and lead us the wrong way. And we'll be murmuring against the prophet and not taking advantage of the saving power of God and so on and so on. It will happen naturally if we are not consciously, frequently every day, and then on the Sabbath for a whole day, 
getting the world out of our head, not listening to it, and making lots of time for God to speak to us. It's so important. I, I just uh, I can't emphasize it enough. So that's that's beautiful stuff. Let's move on to chapter 17. And we've got some interesting names to deal with here. Uh, we, we get that the people are chiding with Moses. So they've got food, but they need water. And water certainly is important, especially in the hot area they are. I, th- I think I shared this briefly once uh, with Lamar and a podcast with Lamar that uh, you were all, uh, you know, it's, it was a podcast, so everyone could hear. Uh, but I can remember uh, being in this area with my family uh, crossing borders between Israel and Egypt when it was 110 degrees. And I thought that the miracle is uh, it would have been if they hadn't murmured. Like it's brutal, really, really brutal. And I'm a guy that doesn't mind heat. I, I really don't mind heat. But when you have me with my little kids in that 110 degree inhospitable climate, oh, wow, it's, it's rough. And, uh, and so I, you need water and I don't blame them for wanting water. I do, I'm not saying that I would be any better than they were, but they're thirsting for water and they murmur uh, against Moses again and they, they chide with him and so on. Then God tells Moses to, to smite the rock. Uh, so we get in verse five. And the rod wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand and go, and behold, I will stand before thee upon the rock in Horeb. We're going to come back to that name in just a second. And thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, um, we're going to, to look at um, the wrong place here. All right. We're going to look at the Hebrew of this word, all right? Verse uh, 6, where we get Horeb. And literally, it's uh, it's another name for Mount Sinai. Uh, this I think that's important to understand uh, that it is a name for Mount Sinai, but it also means like desert. Uh, so here it can't be Mount Sinai because they're going to get to Mount Sinai a little later. Uh, so this is the Sinai area here, but most of the time when you read Horeb, and this is why I want to bring this up, most of the time when you read Horeb, you need to know they're talking about Mount Sinai, um, but uh, here it's talking about the general area, and it may often be talking about the general area, and uh, I mean, we do the same thing today. Sinai is an area, and it's also the name of a mountain, uh, so you go to the Sinai to get to Mount Sinai, and that seems to be what's going on here. You go to Horeb to get to Horeb. Uh, and so most of the time it means the mountain, but sometimes it means the region. And I feel like that's worth your knowing so you don't get uh, confused as you read it there. So now we go on to, to verse 7. Uh, so we read in verse 6 where water comes out of it. And we get verse 7, the name of the place. He calls the name of the place Massah and Meribah. Uh, so we get the Massah, which literally means like temptation or to be tested. Uh, and Meribah which literally means strife or contention. And this is because they are um, they're, uh, being tested and tried there, and it leads to strife or contention. And, and this is uh, something we have to ask ourselves. Uh, how, do, how often does that happen to us? I know I get angry. Uh, I, I, how often does a difficulty lead to friction and upsetness rather than humbly working our way through it? I need to improve in that myself. I think that's something that we all need to improve in and not complain against God, but work our ways through it humbly rather than uh, react to uh, tests and trials with strife. So that's, that's really important. Now, 
We get this really interesting story afterwards. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the symbolism of this because I'm sure you're familiar with it, but it's worth talking about again. Uh, Amalek, uh, that's the Amalekites that come and they fight against Israel in a place called Rephidim. And uh, Joshua is asked to take some men and go out and fight. And and they go out and fight. And Moses stands on top of a hill. And uh, and, and he has uh, Aaron and Hur up with him. And as long as Moses holds his hands up, then Israel prevails. But when his arms go down, Amalek starts to win the battle. But the problem is it's hard to hold your hands up for forever. And so they, they get Moses a stone to sit on, and he sits there, but his arms get tired. So Aaron and Hur hold his arms up. They sustain his arms. And in many ways, this is where the idea of sustaining someone comes from. When they sustain Moses's arms, then their brethren down below win the battle. And as long as they hold them up and they hold it up long enough, um, they do win the battle. But it's only because Moses is not doing this on his own, but he has, as it were, two counselors to sustain him, to hold his arms up as he does this. And I hope this is a great model for presidencies in, in one way, but just for supporting our leaders in general. Uh, do we hold their arms up? Do we help them? Do we sustain them in all of the different ways that we can sustain someone in following whatever it is they're asking us to do and, and making it easy by serving in however we can and encouraging all of us and making it possible for everyone to do what they're asking us to do? Uh, There's so many ways to sustain, but it seems clear to me that in the great spiritual battle in which we are engaged, we will only succeed if we are sustaining our, our leaders that we have sustained, right? We will only win if that's what we're doing. And if not, then the Amalekites of the world are going to overcome us. I cannot emphasize how important it is to sustain the prophets. And again, this podcast will be released just, released just as we've been listening to General Conference. I hope that will urge you to take what the brethren are teaching seriously um, especially the things that you may not agree with. One of the greatest struggles we have today is that the brethren are teaching true and pure doctrine about some things that touch on social issues. And it's hard for people because uh, politics and, and social views are becoming a religion that uh, for us in a way that uh, they compete with our loyalty, our spiritual loyalty. They compete with it mightily. Uh, in terms of which will we be more loyal to are the social spiritual values of the world or the true spiritual values of God as given by his prophets. And we will lose this battle if we are not truly sustaining God's prophets in every way. I hope you'll think about as you go through the conference addresses again, how we can sustain the prophet. There are lots of things to learn about that uh, in this reading. And it's my prayer that I will do the same. And that we can draw power, power from old ancient prophets and reading these scriptures about ancient prophets that will allow us to draw power from our modern prophets. It's my prayer that we will all do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.